Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME. T-O-G-O, to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products devices, or services may be discussed in the context at the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kreviak. I manage the TMA Education Center and produce the TMA Practice Well podcast. And this is Ask the Expert, where you send in your questions and TMA expert staff and guests provide answers. This episode is moderated by Sylvia Salazar, AVP of Membership and Leadership Development. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Today's Ask the Expert is Practice Help for Independent Physicians. We have several TMA speakers and an attorney, Diane Carter, who's a partner with Hush Blackwell, joining us today. Um, Additionally, we have Cara Benson, Manager, TMA Practice Management and Reimbursement Services, Heather Betridge, Associate Vice President for TMA Practice Management Services, Robert Bennett, Vice President of TMA Medical Economics, Kim Harmon, Associate Vice President of Innovative Practice Models, Shannon Vogel, Associate Vice President of Health Information Technology, and Helen Kent Davis, Associate Vice President for Governmental Affairs. We've got a whole host of folks that can help answer all of your questions. So I'm gonna start with the first question we received, um, and I am going to call on Cara Benson to help us answer it. Any advice on handling insurance audits, especially in Medicaid? Hello, everyone. Thank you, Sylvia. This is a question we do get quite often. There are several things actually that you can do when you get an insurance audit. First and foremost, it's important to know what kind of audit it is um, because there are several out there. And 
it's quite possible that it's coming from a third-party entity. Feel free to reach out to us anytime you get those. If you're not sure, we'll be happy to assist you with that. But review your contracts for language on how to handle audits or medical record requests. If the audit results in a refund, depending on the amount of the refund, we always recommend that you reach out to an attorney. If there's not enough information in uh, what they are requesting, contact the number that's on the letter immediately. Um, You can also contact them if you don't feel like you can meet the deadline. So make sure that you are aware of when they are requiring the medical records to be turned in. Look at if they are requesting for code specific, if it's plan specific product, are the are payments being made after the audits? You can always reach out to reimbursement services. We're always here to help you and guide you through the process of the audits. If you can't get any communication with the health plan, we'd be happy to reach out to the contacts that we have and see how we can help you. Thank you so much, Cara. Um, The next question is for Robert. Pharmacies are charging high amounts when prescriptions are written for over-the-counter meds. If insurance is not covering the medication, the pharmacies are collecting the list price from the patient and not telling the patient it is not covered by insurance and is cheaper over-the-counter. Can you please respond to that? Yeah, I mean, that's an issue. That's a a complaint, not really a question. I mean, that's an issue that we've heard of before and, you know, would would encourage you you guys to let us know when this is happening. TMA does have policy very much against this. We have policy called ensuring patient access to affordable prescription medication. And uh, that policy specifically calls for price transparency uh, for generic and brand name uh, prescription drugs. So, uh, you know, the issue sometimes can be resolved through your EHR, sometimes being the keyword where it'll prompt uh, which one's generic, which one's covered under that patient's insurance. But, you know, when there's instances of a pharmacy kind of abusing the system, we would like to know more about that and work on that further with you. Thank you, Robert. Um, let's see, uh, Diane, I was going to call on you and ask if there are any questions or anything that you get frequently in your practice um, from independent physician practices that perhaps you would want to share. I want to say thank you first for, for having me on this. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, and I do work with a lot of physician groups, whether ranging in size from, you know, solo practitioners to uh, larger group practices. And um, it is nice sometimes when you get the same question repeated so that you feel like, oh, I, I know the answer to this. With that. And so some of those, uh, after 30 years of practice, a lot of those questions, I you know, I feel uh, comfortable answering. But one that I actually just got this morning was a very simple question, and it, and it does pop up from time to time, and that is, how long am I required to keep medical records? And so I just thought that was a quick question and answer we could tick off the list to share. And in general, for physicians, the required time frame is seven years unless the patient was under the age of 21 at the time of treatment. And if that were the case, then you keep the records for the longer of either seven years after treatment or until the patient reaches the age of 21 years. And of course, you can always keep the medical records longer. So that's one question that it seems to pop up every couple of months or so. Another one that I get from time to time is, well, you know, we're just a really small group. Do we really need to take the time 
the expense of developing a compliance plan. You know, we're just a simple practice and and do we even need to go through that? And the answer is yes. There is guidance on the HHS OIG website for compliance plans for um, small group physician practices. And, you know, so that's a great place to start is going to that website. Then as you all probably all know, the purpose of a compliance plan is to prevent the submission of erroneous claims or otherwise detect fraudulent activity within within your group. And, um, you know, even a, a small group can be submitting millions of dollars in claims. So it it is substantial and significant and important to make sure you have a compliance plan that can detect those types of things and and help prevent them. And a good compliance plan often will detect something that then needs to be addressed within the compliance plan. But I think the key point is from a regulator standpoint, there's no excuse not to know. You don't get a pass by saying, well, I didn't know that I was supposed to have a working knowledge of these applicable statutes and and laws that apply to my practice. The uh, consequences of not having a compliance plan and, and filing erroneous claims can be severe. It can lead to, you know, refund of the claim times three, plus a penalty of up to $11,000 per claim that's been falsely submitted. It can also implicate other statutes. So, you know, it's, it's very important to make sure you have a working knowledge of those statutes. And one other thing to note is that there's not really an necessarily an off-the-shelf compliance plan. It needs to be tailored to conform to whatever the practice is, the risks, and the like. So that's an often question I get, and I'll pause there. Thank you very much for that. That's very helpful. Um, a TMA does have a few resources for both uh, retention of records and compliance plans. We will make sure that those get posted to the Ask the Expert page so that all of you can refer to those at any time. So our third question is, when getting prior authorization, we will sometimes get a call from the insurance saying we have to answer their questions immediately or will be denied. We're not allowed to say that the staff is out of the office and they need to call back another day. Any advice? Okay, so we have heard of this. It is one of those where we would like for you to reach out and contact reimbursement services immediately when that happens. According to the insurance code, when there is a prior authorization, insurance has three days to do an adverse determination. They don't specify as far as when the communication between the physician and the health plan, it's noted as reasonable time frame. So that doesn't really give you a specific time, but not allowing them to not allowing you to schedule or say that you're you're going to have to call back tomorrow, in my opinion, is unacceptable. So I would certainly like for you to reach out to me directly or reimbursement services so we can help you with that. Thank you, Cara. Does anyone or can anybody speak to the gold card program? There was a question about the prior auth gold card program as well. 
Yeah, the gold card program, we're in this this weird limbo between uh, it passed into law by the Texas legislature, but it has not been implemented uh, via regulations through the Texas Department of Insurance. So there's some needed details there that we don't have yet. I see in the question, they want an update on the program. So, you know, we do expect implementing regulations to be coming out from TDI soon. They've said that it'll come out soon for the past several months. So, you know, we're kind of getting impatient with them on that, but still waiting for them to do that. The commenter also said it read it applies to about 15% of payers. It applies to all Texas regulated plans. It doesn't apply to Medicare. It doesn't apply to Medicare Advantage. So it depends on what payers you're taking and treating. It applies to Texas regulated plans. And uh, on your patient's card, you can see whether it says TDI or not to know if that's a a plan that's regulated by Texas. That's my uh, best answer there. More details will be coming out when the regulations come out, and we'll put those in the Texas Medicine Today and other educational venues, of course. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Our next question, and I'll call on Helen Kent Davis. Does the state insurance commissioner rank insurance plans based on number of complaints? If so, is there a way for us to get a hold of that info and share it with patients who are trying to find a good plan? Thank you. To the point, um, it doesn't actually rank the health plans, but through the Office of Public Insurance Council, the state does have report cards on Medicaid HMOs. And that is part of the information that is included is the number of complaints that TDI has received, along with information about the health plan's quality measures, whether they're NCQA certified. So it's a very good resource to share with your patients. It is specific to the HMOs for those that are regulated by TDI. Again, those are state regulated plans. For Medicaid, there's a similar process for those who participate in that program. There are also report cards that look at the quality patient satisfaction and so forth, but I wouldn't call it a ranking per se, but there is a way for you to look at the number of complaints that are submitted to TDI. And that's something that, of course, you can share with your patients where you yourself can file a complaint. There is a process through the independent review organization for those related to quality, but the report cards are a great resource for patients looking for Texas regulated HMOs or in Medicaid managed care. Thank you, Helen. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to mention on the issue of the gold carding, um, it also does not apply to Medicaid health plans. So it's state regulated commercial health plans, not Medicaid. Right. Shannon, did you have something to add? I was just going to say related to the gold card also does not apply to the ERISA plans. So those that are uh, self-funded employer plans, it doesn't apply to. So, you know, in general, that that 15% is probably pretty close, which, you know, unfortunately, we just can't regulate things that don't happen under under Texas authority. Thank you. And Sylvia, let me just kind of expand on that even further. I mean, Helen and Shannon are correct. I don't, um, but you know, this, this Texas uh, gold card law has been pretty popular on a federal level. And uh, we, we know of uh, legislation that's going to be introduced uh, that would apply the Texas gold carding law to Medicare Advantage plans. Those bills have not been introduced yet, but they're going to be introduced by Texas members of the House of Representatives. And we've been working with them on this. So, you know, what starts in Texas, uh, what's, what's the expression? Ripples everywhere. So more to come on that. Thanks, Robert. Our next question, um, Heather, any advice on getting group discounts on supplies and services? 
Um, sure. So there's a few options you can explore. The first is looking at GPOs or a group purchasing organization. And those are membership based where members spending is collated as a group, which is used to get better pricing. And each GPO will have arrangements with different vendors. For example, two uh, GPOs that we encounter in practices are Connect and Group Source. And one has an arrangement solely with McKesson, and one works with both uh, McKesson and Henry Shine. So definitely explore options to see which one has the vendors that best fit your needs. Some practices take advantage of wholesale warehouses like Sam's Club or Costco, and you can get a business account set up for the practice and get preferred pricing that way as well. And look to your professional associations like TMA or your specialty societies or your manager and administrator might belong to MGMA. And those entities typically will have um, negotiated or preferred pricing or discounts where members get a flat fee, uh, a flat percentage off purchases. So take a look at those as well. But those are some to explore. Thank you, Heather. I have another question for you while I've got your attention. Any advice on cost-effective ways of finding employees? Okay. So there's several ways to recruit new employees without breaking the bank. First is utilizing recruitment platforms like Indeed.com or professional networking websites like LinkedIn. They both offer options for free ad placement. Now, they don't necessarily make it obvious that you can still post for free, especially on Indeed since they changed their pricing structure at the first of the year, but you can place it for free. And even if you do end up sponsoring your ad, which which means you pay for better placement um, for candidate searches, but you can set a budget in your account that you don't want to spend over X dollars each month, or you can say, I'm going to pay 25 cents per click. And I'll, I'll share that on average. When we place ad for practices for consulting projects, we typically spend about 300 to 350 a month. But It's still far less expensive than when we had to place ads in the newspapers that were, you know, just two days over one weekend of the month, which was, you know, $11 to $1,200 for the larger metros. So just make sure if you go that route that you have a customized and catchy ad to really stand out because some of the online platforms, indeed specifically, will require you to sponsor an ad posting if there's too many post with similar wording. And if you haven't visited the TMA Career Center, definitely check that out as it's very similar to Indeed and and comparable in pricing as well. You You can also contact your local community college and vocational schools in your area and ask about maybe some standout or exceptional students, particularly if you're looking for a medical coder or a medical assistant, technicians, LVNs, and the like, because some of those practices, or excuse me, some of those programs guarantee students' job placements upon completion of their program. So that's an inexpensive way to look. Some practices will offer a referral bonus to um, existing employees where they pay a bonus to employees if they refer a job seeker and it ends up being a match. So what we see in practice is there'd be a bonus paid in phases. So 
For example, the first payout might be upon hire, and then the second might be upon successful completion of their 90-day probation period. And lastly, you know, you can always ask your colleagues at other practices. A lot of physicians stay in touch with good, reputable employees. And so they might know of a past trusted employee who might be in the market looking for a new job. Thank you so much, Heather. I appreciate it. Um, Let's see. Um, Does a private cash-only practice have to comply with the good faith estimate rules of No Surprises Act? Um, There's the Federal No Surprises Act, and then there's also the, the Texas No Surprises Act. And in general, the Federal No Surprises Act that went into effect at the first of the year is broader and applies to uh, most types of insurance providers. And essentially, it bars balance billing from most out-of-network providers providing emergency services. Um, To the extent the services are non-emergency services provided at an in-network facility, then you can, in some instances, balance bill if you've obtained consent, provided advance notice and obtained consent. And there's a specific form that the feds put out for that. And it's very explanatory as far as walking the provider through it. Aside from that, there are certain services for which the consent option does not apply. Those include things that are related to emergency care, such as anesthesia, pathology, radiology, neonatology, services provided by assistant services or um, hospitalists, certain diagnostic services like imaging and lab, and other urgent services that arise during the, the provision of the emergent care. So that's kind of a, a broad description of the, the Federal No Surprises Act and, and when it applies and when you can obtain consent. Thank you so much for that. Since HRSA won't reimburse for COVID vaccines anymore, can we decline to provide the vaccine for uninsured or collect an admin fee? I don't remember the latest on the, uh, the charges for the COVID vaccine, but I do recall that there is a requirement that the a charge be posted on the provider's website. And I'd also caution against treating uninsured differently from insured. I mean, if you can require payment up front for, you know, whatever you're, you just need to be consistent on how you treat the insured versus uninsured. But it's been a few months now since the flurry of the, the legal discussions and activity with regard to, you know, structuring the COVID vaccine and the payments and the like. And, and I don't remember the specifics at this point in time. We can always work on that and post an answer on the Ask the Expert page as well. Thank you. Um, the next question is, some of us are struggling with getting patients to pay old balances and have been reluctant to use a collection agency. Do you have any advice for us? You know, you don't want to have a policy that say, you know, patients are expected to make payment at the time of service, and then you don't follow up on it. You know, you're communicating to patients that you're not serious about collecting that debt. So a lot of the practices we go into have the same feeling, but you can work with a reputable collection agency that once you interview them, ask them specific questions, like what is your scripting for employees when they make those phone calls? What's your process? How many calls do you make? Are you sending letters? 
But it is encouraged to use a collection agency as long as they're approaching collections appropriately and that they're not harassing patients, but more looking to patients to make some sort of arrangement to get those funds collected as they should be. Thanks so much, Heather. The next question um, about incident to billing. What are the minimal requirements as far as physician involvement? Um, We do have an edge sheet on incident to billing. Um, Minimum requirements, physician must be in the office suite. You don't have to be in the room, um, but you must be readily available. It's direct supervision. The physician must have an active part in the ongoing care. Any physician that is in the office, um, even if the physician that wrote the plan of care is out, a supervising physician in the office is allowable. Those are the pretty much the, the biggest concepts that we run across. And this is Diane. I'll just add as well that I know a lot of practices are not billing incident to just because of the regulatory risk. I mean, it's, it, you know, just to make sure that all those boxes are checked that are likely listed in, in the ed sheet that, that is posted there. So a lot of practices just said, you know what, it's, it's, to not worth it, not worth the work to get to do incident to billing and the the audits that might come along with that. So um, you just need to be darn sure you're documenting everything appropriately and, and doing it properly if you do engage in incident to billing. And I see there's a question about new patients. You cannot bill incident to in relation to new patients or new problems. If the mid level is credentialed directly with the health plan, then they can see them and bill directly under their number. An important thing to know is that two health plans recently, Cigna and Humana, now require the mid-level to be credentialed in order to bill. Thank you for that, Cara. Helen, did you have something to add to that? I just wanted to go back to the Incident 2 piece because there is separate requirements for Medicaid. And you have to remember that Medicare and Medicaid don't always do things the same way. So if you are a physician who participates in Medicaid, you need to make sure you carefully look at the manual and follow the guidance within it because it's it's a little bit different than what other payers require in terms of the physician participation. Thank you. There was a secondary question to that about incident two and telemedicine. Yes, currently that is allowed. There is a modifier that is required to indicate um, supervision was done via telemedicine. Thank you. We've got time for one last question. Are there any companies that help a practice start a buy and build program? For example, there is a new injectable treatment for HIV that is available for our practice to implement via buy and bill versus having the patients obtain medication from a specialty pharmacy. I know that some specialties like rheumatology and GI have more experience with administrating expensive infusions, for example, and they might use a third party to help avoid pitfalls with reimbursement. Do any of our experts have any information to share on that? I'd have to look into that. I don't know of a, of a company that would help a practice start one. I'd have to look into that and then we can post it in the follow-up information unless Cara has a specific answer. No, I don't know of any companies, but the health plans do have specific policies on buy and bill. So I'm not really sure how a third party company would go around that, but most of the health plans are very specific and then they do not allow buy and bill. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us for the Ask the Expert program. This activity is designated for half AMA PRA category one credit.
As a reminder, you can visit textmed.org forward slash Ask the Expert to find upcoming Ask the Expert dates, resource links on topics, and podcast recordings of all our prior Ask the Expert events. Let us know if you have any questions. Thank you so much for your membership and thank you for joining us today. We hope you take away practical tips you can start using today. Check the episode description for the links to claim CME and the full list of Ask the Expert episodes. Remember to like and follow the TMA Practice Well podcast so you get every episode. Until next time, stay well.